Hello and welcome to another episode of the Big MX Radio Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this episode with Weston Pike. I want to let you know that we have a ton of great sponsors on the Big MX Radio Podcast, one of which is Luxon MX. They make a bunch of really amazing hard parts and their flagship product is a set of triple clamps that is going to be tuned in to perfection of what you need to feel more comfortable on your motorcycle. It is engineered to perfection, and you can save 10% with Luxon MX with the discount code BIGMX. So you can go to their website and you can check out with any of their products, enter BIGMX and receive a 10% discount. Why that's awesome is that uh, obviously triple clamps are a high ticket item, something around the, the about $1,000. So that 10% discount is essentially BIGMX Radio handing you $100 off your next purchase over at Luxon MX. Really excited to be working with those guys. Also want to let you know that we have a brand new discount code with Guts Racing. Uh, Guts Racing has been a sponsor of the Big MX podcast for now three years, and they just set up a $20 or 20% discount, which is Big MX 20 at checkout uh, is not case sensitive, I don't think. Uh, so you guys can go ahead and enter that. Uh, save some money on the best seat bases, seat foam, and seat covers in the sport of motocross. So many teams in the pits use those guys, and they use them because they are the best, best products out there uh, as far as seats go. So go check that stuff out, gutsracing.com. And uh, yeah, you can save uh, 20% with Big MX20 at checkout. Uh, we also have a discount code on Phoenix Handlebars. Phoenix Handlebars is Big MX Radio 15. Saves you 15% off every single one of your orders that way. And uh, that is great savings because they're usually right around the uh, the $100 mark for a set of handlebars. And they also have a ton of great little options that you can get yourself, extra bar pads and stuff like that to sort of customize your look. Uh, they've got some interesting looking ones, some uh, some funky colors, as well as uh, some pretty uh, conservative color ways as well. But you can really sort of uh, really have some fun with how you want your bike to look with our friends over at Phoenix Handlebars. Plus, they make a, uh, make great bars, and they have great customer service. Speaking of great customer service, we also have WUSA on with us. Honestly, it's a tight-knit group over there in Orange, California. They're just a stone's throw from Anaheim, um, and they do a great job with their stuff. You're going to have the best experience working with that company. They work, work with some of the best materials. In fact, you can buy the materials separately, or you can have them put together a set of wheels for you. You can even send them your stock hubs and have them build you a set of wheels that you will absolutely drool over. And guess what? If you mention Big MX Radio when working with WSA, you're going to save some money. And same thing goes for Racetech. Racetech gold valves offer basically a complete revalve in a box. Better bottoming resistance as well as better traction, which is going to drop your lap times. That's exactly what you need to enjoy your motorcycle, just that much more. And you can save some money by mentioning Big MX Radio when you order with Racetech. All right, that's enough of sponsor reads for now. Support the companies that support Big MX Radio. Also want to give a huge, huge shout out to SKDA Graphics as well as Shades of Grey Helmet Painting. Josh Gray, honestly, one of the best helmet painters in the business. He is extremely talented and uh, you need your helmet painted. Even if it's just doing some custom work on the back, uh, he's got great pricing. Uh, shipping is pretty reasonable right around now. So uh, go ahead and get that done, guys. All right, now on to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.
Welcome to the Big MX Radio Podcast, brought to you by Fox Racing Canada. You guys know the drill. Head to the website, memorize a catalog, and then head on to your local dealer and get fitted and protected by Fox Racing Canada. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt, but with me on the line, a guy who has been way too quiet for way too long. He's got way too many stories, so I had to call him up from Fly Racing. It's Weston Pike. Weston, how's it going? Good, man. How are you guys doing? I'm doing well, man. I I am stoked to have you on um, the the working man's superhero when it came to Supercross, a guy who so many people like myself could really relate to. You were a rough and tumble racer for a long time, uh, took no shit uh, and 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 really performed at maybe a level that I don't think I think maybe even you surprised yourself in the end of how what you were able to get to. Um, but we'll, we'll get to the whole story at some point during this interview. But um, how are you doing nowadays? I see you're wearing the fly shirt. Looks like you're in a hotel. So you're still doing some jet setting, doing some ride days and stuff like that and still staying busy. How's Weston Pike here in 2023? I'm good, man. Can't complain. Uh, um, life's been moving forward since injury, obviously. Four years almost, but uh, same thing, man. Just I switched roles facing mainly, but uh, just ride, try, trying to ride. But there's so much damn rain, you can't even ride. I've ridden twice in two weeks now, but so just here for the Supercross series, kind of bouncing around, uh, doing my thing with Fly and just staying busy, man. Being a brand ambassador and helping them as much as I can with all the different brands and riding dirt bikes, trying to. Fair enough. Well, you know what? Uh, Our friends over at Supercross decided not to uh, shuffle the deck as far as uh, rebranding each series. So I don't know if you know, but this round coming up, it may only be the second race of 2023, but it's actually round three. Uh, It's being labeled that as uh, uh, by by the media and uh, and Supercross. So uh, you're going to have to do your best uh, best impression of someone who acknowledges that this is, in fact, round three uh, coming up in San Diego, a track. A facility that I think you actually no, I don't think you ever raced here. You would have raced at Qualcomm as well as uh, Petco Park. This would be a new venue for you. Um, but uh, like, just t- talk about reconnecting with the fans when when you go to these events. Uh, people who um, they've only ever been to a Supercross race. They sit in the stands. They're at, they're at like a they're almost as far away. Like they're a football field away from you at all times, unless they get into the autograph line. Um, being able to shake the hands and actually meet some of these people who uh, love fly, they look up, they looked up to you as a pro, and probably still do to this day. What, what's that like, and how are the interactions? It's awesome, and I, that's you know kind of like my role of why I didn't want to kind of just completely disappear out of the sport was because of you know just the the diehard fans that I had and in the sports so that's why i kind of roll into doing these events with fly racing and it's it's just that you know it, it gives people a different perspective where they can actually have a conversation if they want to like I, i'm at the, i'm at the, i'm in the pits all day long with our our fly activation setup so like we have a full and semi-container you know with our product so i'll be bouncing around there pretty much all day is kind of what i do and just interacting with fans people um all of our reps and stuff, dealers that show up and it's pretty much just, I'm just there as an image. Like I said, I've been with fly for 13 years now. So it's, it's it, it, it as much as I can and, and just hang out with people and, and give them what they want. Cause most people don't get 
a chance to talk, talk to riders because when we're racing, it's so we're here, we're there. We don't have time to really sit and chat and, and BS with people where it's like we're now doing this role. I can actually have a conversation with somebody longer than two seconds and then feel like a dick because I'm like, hey, I got to go. I don't have time for this. I got to race. I got to do this. I got to do that. So it's it's kind of cool to be able to get in, get into that situation and be able to actually interact with with people that just want to that just want to actually have a conversation you know and not 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 be like two seconds of conversation and gone so it's, it's kind of cool to to have that accessibility definitely and, and your career um ascended along with fly i feel like they were in step like uh, obviously, Fly came onto the scene early, early 2000s. First guy to wear the helmet was Tim Ferry. And then uh, I think the first guy to be head to toe minus the helmet because he wore the shark helmet was David Villeman back in 2003 or 2004. Uh, he had that all blue stuff and he had all, all the the all white stuff as well. That was a pretty sweet look. But um, when it t- talk about like the when Fly really arrived on scene and was seen on a regular basis uh, in the main events, uh, I think of yourself and I think of uh, Trey Kennard. And, and the two of you were very like sort of like synonymous with the brand. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure there's some people that you meet at these events that um, like they meet you and they get to sort of like tell you about how they sort of fell in love with the brand. And that's kind of cool. No, it is. It's awesome. I mean, like I said, to be able to grow with a brand like Fly, and, and I I came on in 09, and, and even in 2009, um, Max Steffens is who I was my guy at the time, and he's the one that got me hooked up and, and set up with Fly from then on out. But it's just crazy, you know, to see a brand like that, you know, go from mediocre brand products, you know, these issues, those issues. And then over my time from 09, we made such big strides in product and quality and fit. And it was, and not only that is you say canard, but I think I want to say Andrew Short was in it before. I yeah, was. Shorty too. Shorty was, I think he was 08, but he was like the first one to be, he was before canard, I believe. Cause I know canard came yeah. on later. Right. Cause he was on, on uh, uh, FC. Cause he was on, he was on Fox until. Uh, he turned pro, like turned into the 450 class in I think 2010, 11. Because I think Shorty yeah, was the first to get yeah, a fly gear. If I'm yes. correct, modern, it's not David Villamendez. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, if the first championship. <laughs> Yeah, few first first uh, championship in fly would have been Brandon Jessamine, and there's a name from the past. Uh, and then, um, and then the next champion would have been uh, uh, J Law in 2009 in the out or no 08 08 uh, East Coast Supercross or East or West. I can't remember. I think it was West West Coast Supercross. Uh, either way, um, yeah, fly like the it's really cool that they're, they still embrace you. And obviously uh, you working with Damon Bradshaw, like, do you just kind of pinch yourself every once in a while? It's like, yeah, like this is the guy that I, I do these events with is like the um, one of the, maybe the most beloved and uh, like fan favorite rider of the last 40 years. Damon Bradshaw is your coworker. Yeah. No, it's cool. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's funny. Cause we're both hard asses. Like we both, we both don't take shit at all. And and like when we get into it, we're just like, fucker, no, no one's gonna win here. 
So it's cool to have it's cool to have him on and have his knowledge and and he's he's cool to be around. You know, we jive and we get along well, which works because we're we're doing you know 15 events a year plus together. So it's like it's it's a good match. You know, we bullshit together, we ride good, we're we're on the same page. So it's it's cool to have him a, a part of the program. Absolutely. And and you can you can swear if you absolutely need to. Lord knows I grew up in a hockey dressing room, so I fucking swear as much as anybody else does. So, uh, yeah, just let her fly, man. Um, like your ascension to where you eventually ended up, which was a, a podium contender week after week uh, at the Supercross level, didn't really start that way. Uh, your amateur career. Uh, different than most you come onto the scene on the, on the pro ranks uh, in as a 19 year old or a 20 year old in 2009. Um, tell me a little bit about your amateur career coming, uh, uh, growing up in California, you would have been racing guys. I guess you're a couple of years younger than like Josh Grant and stuff like that. But that sort of would have been the sort of murderer's row of, uh, of like guys you, you grew up with. Who are some of the guys that you uh, battled with most uh, in, in Southern California and racing some of those iconic tracks? Yeah. So my, my era was um, my, I was only short. I did, I think I did, 06, 07, 08. So I did three years of like actual travel amateurs, but I wow. was with Mike Baggett, Dean Wilson, um, a couple of the guys. Those are the only two that I really remember that actually kind of made it out of that, made it to the level of, of what we did racing to a professional side. So, I mean, we, all three of us were always battling it out. Um, me and, me and Baggett got into a ton of, ton of, ton of amateur, <clears throat> a ton of amateur battle and it was good i mean amateurs was good I, I never was that well of a writer and then i got with a trainer early on al Griffey, which trained who was that you said on the flight originally the two that won jessamine not jessamine jessamine yeah he, he trained all yeah so he um that's who took me from because i was never a good writer i was just hard work i never had talent so i i trained with him you know two times a day just busted my ass and that's kind of part of where my career as an amateur started getting better because I had discipline. I had a good trainer under me that, you know, was, was working my ass off and, and put me to that level that stepped me into that realm. But yeah, amateurs was good, man. It was, I did, I had a solid three years. I won some titles and Loretta's and, you know, Ponca and what Florida, all those races, you know, so, but it was short lived though. I mean, amateur career for me wasn't good because I didn't have a ride. I had support from young Yamaha my last two years, but I wasn't getting paid. I was I was still buying bikes at a discount. So it was just tough to keep racing and spend another eighty thousand dollars a year. Or my dad, let's say spend eighty thousand dollars a year to take me to an amateur race that I'm still not gonna get signed on a 250F going into the pro racing. So <clears throat> amateurs for me was was good, but it didn't help me in no means to get a ride for the professional career, which was unfortunate. But it was one of those things where we just had to had to work for it. Yeah, but uh, at the same time, you must have also seen love the process. Like as much as it's hard work and it's uh, like the, those races are uh, a lot, of, a lot of sacrifice. Um, you did well, and, and you performed at, at a really high level against some really good competition in throughout a time when like amateur racing was essentially at its peak uh, right before the sort of the economic downturn. Like there was so much attention, whether it was uh, playground magazine, the pickle um, verb moto, like the, the amateur scene was extremely vibrant at the time. And you actually sort of kind of got out of that 
at the perfect time of things sort of like not becoming as well supported in that sort of way. Um, like growing up, like I, I can't imagine Weston Pike on an 80, like you must've had a beard, like broad shoulders looking like an uh, NFL linebacker. Um, like how young did you get off of those bikes? Um, I rode, I mean, I rode, I came all the way up. So I rode like, I think I was riding at two or three years old. So I raced locally because my dad raced as I think he was a team green rider. Uh, Louis. Oh, Louis was team green rider and then got fired, I think. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so I, I raced. But, yeah, I was always like I rode 80s for quite some time. And then from there, I always hopped on. My dad had a 125 and a 252-stroke. So, like, I was riding a 125 probably for my whole my whole life never revolved around never expected to be a racer by no means i never if, if you take me back to that time um i would get i would um sorry we got housekeeping showing up <laughs> i would i would um never think a day in my life that i'd be racing like just with that how i grew up and how i was raised and and what i was doing before I raced and then to all of a sudden look forward to be around that I was like is this real is this realistic you know what I mean but it's just it was for me it was just a, it was for me it was a lot of work and I was always like from that amateur career to moving on like I was always like terrified because my dad spent so much money to get me to the point of even before I was even successful was like I was always scared he's gonna fuck kick my ass because like we spent all this money or spent all his money and then I just fucking quit, you know? So it was like, I always had that mentality of like, you can't, you can't give up. You can't quit because if you do, then you're pretty much ruining whatever the hell. I don't really, it was just that mentality. Me, So that's what built that, that killer be killed mentality in my life was like, I don't have a choice. So I always race. Like I don't have a fucking choice. Like, so that's what I think helped me. And that's what that's it was because <clears throat> I knew if I sucked, I took it to heart. Like I was like going to be letting my parents down because they spent all this damn money. And then I just decided that I'm just going to suck, which I didn't have that position in life, which that's why a lot of privateers these days, I would just laugh because people try to give them credit. And I'm like, these fucking pussies sit out here <clears throat> and do two laps on a supercross track or they don't put in the work or they don't bust their ass. And, and they want to cry like, oh, poor me. I don't get this help. It's like, bitch, you're sitting at the track, which I've seen numerous times. They're literally sitting on their tailgate bullshitting and they go out there and do Josh Hansen fucking laps around the track and they don't even put in the work. So like. Those two laps do end up on Instagram track. though. They do, which nothing against Hansen. That dude fucking would smoke me in, in two laps by fucking far. But <laughs> it's just, that's, that. I'm just relating to like the difference between me and what, and people wonder why, Oh, how did he make it? It's because if, if I think back, I never once showed up to the track to just hang out and bullshit. I showed up and I fucking put in work. Like whether I was good or bad, I still rode my dirt bike. Every single time I was on the track where 99, 99% of the other privateers that I rode with, they'd fuck off all day. They wouldn't even like, I can name so many of them to this day that are still racing. I'm just like, Yep, you guys are in the exact same speed. You're in the exact same position. But that's just, that's me. That's, I, I call people out because people just bullshit and cry and complain that they don't have this and they don't have that or I don't have a choice. I'm like, well, your fucking program sucks because you don't put in the work.
But absolutely, <laughs> and we're we're not just gonna blow Josh Greco out here, but um, I'm just kidding. Um, but I love Josh, and there's ma- there's many others, uh, and and I think Josh is pretty re- realistic about his career. Um, but um, from you, I saw a lot of uh, stubbornness that like. Even though, yeah, the the raw talent and the just natural ability might not be there, um, I th- there's just a lot of determination and, like I said, stubbornness. Me like, nah, fuck that. I'm gonna like force myself through this uh, pinhole that is like, if you go onto the other side, you can be a um, a, a factory superstar, and, and that's exactly what you did. And and like the road to it was like you paved your own damn road for it uh, every single step of the way. Um, Talk to us a little bit about those first couple of years uh, from transitioning from uh, the the amateur days to to racing pro. And yet, yeah, it might have been your back uh, your backyard as far as like your favorite track or your the track you grew up racing. But a ninth place at Glen Helen for your first national in the 450 class to springboard a career where a guy never raced a 250F. Period. For all the guys who bag on everybody for not moving up to the 450 class, uh, you moved up there immediately and uh and show some results right off the hop man ninth place at at uh at glen helen and then backed it up two weeks later at uh at freestone not too shabby yeah dude that was <clears throat> that was interesting because that, that was in that time period where obviously the economy was taking a shit in 08 09 and my dad didn't have the money to to do another year of amateur so i didn't even race amateur pro i raced intermediate and that was my last amateur race was loretta's in a way so we actually ended up selling the yamahas we had and we went and bought two brand new honda 450s so that's all i had going into that 2009 outdoor season i obviously skipped supercross because that, i wasn't ready for that um but we i started off with that at privateer um wonder Warhog, wonder Warhog at that time and i didn't have i mean i had expectations because i, I always made goals for myself so like i knew what i could do at glenn helen and I knew I could top 10 or get pretty damn close to it. And, and I did that. It was hard as shit, you know, but um, just that, that whole first year was, was wild for me. Cause I was, I started off as a privateer. I had all my own stuff. No one helped me. I had small help, but it's not like I was getting checks written to me or, you know, I was getting parts and this and that. Um, but then I, then what happened in 09 was I stepped into a situation where I was told if I can do this good of, a position top 10 then i can actually then they'll sign me for moto concepts so then i actually signed on with moto concepts after i top 10 at glen helen so they held the word on that and then kind of just scanned through that that whole year that was like their first that was like their second year of a team so they were still trying to figure it out they didn't have the best bikes so i had a ton of dns just because based off bikes breaking engines blowing up fucking wheels tires this that so there's so much crap that kind of like dampered my the beginning of my career because like I had the speed but I didn't have a good enough bike to get me to that next level so that so getting on that that support team was cool but it fucked me in the long run because I had so many bike issues that it looked like oh Weston sucks Weston sucks DNF 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 because when people look at the results they're not like oh he had bike his bike blow. No, it just says you fucking sucked. <laughs> and um, so that kind of messed me up. And then I had to like, you know, and then I was promised a, a ride for 2010 from Mike Genova, and then that didn't happen. So then that put some sour taste in my mouth with him. Um, 
but then I ended up getting a deal with Mike Duclos to have the opportunity to make an actual um, satellite team with Yamaha. So um, Rock River, Mike Duclos, he bought a semi. It was delivered to my house by a driver. Me and my dad fucking gutted it. We put the sponsors together. We did almost everything, like everything I'm talking and that that went on for the first year and then a couple of people came out of the team um as managers this and that and then that whole thing kind of disputed into a crazy mess and i ended up quitting that and then ended up back on the fucking program of privateer again so then i went privateer support team built my own team with uh rock river and then back to privateers bought cowies i had actually i had people that bought me two cowies i didn't even buy the cowies i ended up finding some cool people that helped me out and supported the program. So I had um, my buddy, Bill Timmy and Mike, um, losing my mind, Mike Malagio, they ended up both finding people and they bought me bikes. So I had two Cowies and I went racing with two Cowies um, under Ted Parks now. So fast forward to, okay. yeah, so that was when uh, Wonder Warthog went out and then Ted Parks came in and took over that whole support thing for riders like me, you know, that didn't have money to get there. And, you know, so he helped out with that. So I was on that, man. And I was just kind of just here and there, had some good races, had some crappy races. Um, but at the same time I'm building, you know what I mean? I'm still busting my ass and I'm, and I'm getting better making strides, but then I'd fall back. Cause it's like, I don't have money to get this good a product. I don't have money to do it the right way. So there's just a lot of crazy shit in that first couple of years of, of my professional career where it's like i knew i had i had the speed i didn't have the speed but i didn't have the bikes i didn't have the support because there's so much that went into that of like when you're when you're racing and you have to do your own fucking top ends on a friday night before the race and you're you're building bikes yourself you're framing bikes with my dad me and my dad framing bikes then mechanics this there's so much shit going on you know that a lot of people don't know that went into my career and then wonder why I'm so sour sometimes of like how people treated me knowing that I was good, but I did fucking continue to struggle for so many years. So it was, yeah, like I said, that whole, my whole first three or four years was chaos of, of uh, being a privateer. For certain. And like, just from the outside looking in um, from their perspective, obviously like you were a young guy, you were, you're thick. You're like, like you said off air, we're like, you're probably about 230 pounds, maybe 250 on with that, with gear on compared to a bunch of 150 pound children uh, coming into the sport that puts you behind the eight ball as well as basically like a completely uh, thick, like non-existent 250 career where a lot of 450 teams sort of like base all of their, uh, their scouting report on how did you do in the two fifties? Well, you didn't do the two fifties. So um, that kind of eliminates that altogether. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of people who just sort of made their mind up about Weston Pike and like 450 privateer is a very precarious situation because um, there's, there's so much that goes into a program. There's so much needed to be sort of on point to put two things together, especially when you're competing against the top teams in the world, whether it's Star Racing Yamaha, Factory Honda, Factory Cowie, all of that stuff. And like as a privateer, you're so often working with with companies that like 
the the biggest companies won't even touch you. So you're dealing with companies that like they say, hey, yeah, we can get you three sets of wheels and they actually can get you zero sets of wheels and or like, hey, we can pay you X number of dollars and actually they can pay you none of those dollars and like they'll string you along for three or four months while you use their product and promote them at the races only to never actually pay you. Uh, and that continuously puts guys behind the eight ball. And it's so tough to even just sort of get out of that or even align yourself with people who are going to do what they say they're going to do. Um, I feel like you were you were like kind of almost kind of in that little sort of spin cycle for at least two or three years there. And and honestly, it's it's amazing you were able to get out of it at all because there's a lot of guys who don't. No, no, they just keep staying in that same wheel of fortune fucking genre. But yeah, it's the same thing that you're saying is like, you're promised, you're promised things, but you can't help hold them accountable because you don't have anything to hold them accountable with. You know what I mean? Like they could tell you the world and then send you stuff here and there, you use it. And then at the end of the day, you're still screwed or you're not, you're, or you're not getting what you were told you were going to get. And it's, it is tough because I mean, dude, I did it, like I said, for three or four years until 2014. Um, or let's just say like 2013 was when I think I actually started making strides like that was my year that put me into 14 um yeah i had gotten i think a couple top fives that year in outdoors um i was top 10 in supercross a, a pretty a handful of times twice so like, yeah i was a ninth and a tenth or ninth and a seventh yeah. which was a great but it was else at that time with what i had to work with i just had so much crazy the utah national and my fucking bikes wouldn't start so i had the only way my bikes would start i had to put had to jump start my bike so as soon as they as soon as the gate would get ready to, to get ready i literally would be off the gate bump starting my bike to get it to start and that was like i think i ended up finishing fourth overall or fifth overall that weekend in in utah yes fourth so, overall yeah so that kind of all those little things you know kept you know catching people's eyes but then i was still i went into 14 with no damn rides so i ended up getting help from motorsport hillsborough and then motorsport outlet and fly racing i leased right. a fucking a show hauler from your yenrick that used to race us down a, a show hauler so then i put me and my dad we put together a team for a one-person team me only had me a uh, full-time mechanic driver and a suspension guy, Dave. And we went at it, dude. Like, we're like, fuck it. This is all we have. Like I had a full, I had a full setup, everything good. That was like my breakout year of Supercross. I think I was, I was a hell of a lot way more consistent than 13, just cause I had, I had money at that point now after not having anything and just kind of grinding and, and not being able to focus on what I, which was just riding. I had to do a lot of other things. So in 14, I had I had more of a platform of just bikes, product, money to be able to do what I needed to do. So then that's what kind of, that's what boosted me being able to step into the RCH situation. But, but even at that, like I got lucky, like I think Josh Hill and Tickle both got hurt and it was me and Tedesco that were racing tedesco was a test rider he didn't even want to race out yes yeah. and then they I hired me <laughs> but it's like i think of it like if those if those two guys didn't get hurt then i would have never had that opportunity to like like that 
with RCH giving me that opportunity to to get that fill and run, I'm it's like you never know. I don't know if it, if it wasn't for that, would I have ever signed for JGR in that in that situation? But yeah, it was it was cool though. I mean, they they gave me an awesome opportunity to fill in for that. You know, I made some money that year, and then I actually signed. I signed that deal in like I think Rutherford, New Jersey, on RCH, going into 14 Outdoors, and then I signed. And then I started to talk to JGR during outdoors while I was racing for RCH. And then I signed, I signed my JGR contract in, in Unadilla that same year in 2014 for JGR 15. So just tons of crazy shit within months. So just, it's crazy how, you know, just those things happen if you, if you put your mind to it and make shit happen. Yeah. Like honestly, like to, like to touch on that 14 outdoor season before you got the JGR ride, um, nine, six, nine, six, six, a 40th in uh red bud, but I assume that was either a broken bike or a crash, uh, fifth, eighth, sixth, seventh, and 11th and ninth in the in the nationals you race all of them uh first time racing all the nationals all but two of them were top 10 finishes um and that year in supercross you missed uh, you only missed two main events uh which i assume one of them was daytona because that's the iconic kick the bike off the stand um like before we we can't get to the the rest of your career without talking about that particular uh moment in your career you and bobby canary last lap daytona um did did you get it or did he get it like is i i something about that story reminds me that like you actually they ended up giving the did they give it to you or they give it to the to bobby k no they ended up giving it to me because yeah that was weird shit because i think i don't remember how they said it because they, they the the transponder reader was always in a different spot. Yeah, like on, she's on supposed the, to be at the bottom of the jump, but yeah, on the bottom or what? So I don't know if I was at the bottom first or vice versa. But I feel like at the end of the day, like if I was to go back, like he fucking got that, <laughs> like he got yeah. that race, not me. But I was livid because I'm like, like me and Canary, it was like me and Canary and Thomas always fucking going at it in the LCQ, like always going at it. And uh, I think who won that? You have the stats. Was that JT that won it? No, JT wouldn't have won the LCQ at Daytona. Uh no. I think I don't know how how he. That was actually a bad year for for JT. Um, wait, fourteen. I don't think JT JT wasn't racing in fourteen. But that was thirteen. Was when I kicked the bike off. Oh, okay. I, was uh, I think his last year was twelve. Honestly, I think he like. He had a horrible year in 12 and hated it. I'll double check though. Uh yeah, Daytona 13th. Uh yeah, he's not he's not in the main event at all. Yeah. So he, he his last year was 12. That's the year he got in front of uh uh Dungey at Hangtown and uh Dungey got mad at him. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so that whole uh, uh that whole LCQ thing was kind of like it should have went to Canary cuz I think personally the key was ahead of me. Like it was pretty damn close. I mean, yeah, I, I I jumped off further, so maybe the timing thing was at the top. Who knows? But yeah, so that that whole thing, like, that's how much passion I had for racing. Because like, literally, I was in the fucking, I was in the garage in Daytona, rebuilding my bike till probably fucking nine ten o'clock at night on Friday night before that race, 
because I had a mechanic at the time, but he was a fucking dumbass. And so we, there was just so many issues back and forth, <clears throat> had issues during the day, um, all that crap. So it was just, that's why I was just so pissed because I'm like, God damn it, that's how I make my money. You know what I mean? And then if you're so close and then you miss it, you, you're just, I was always just like, I took it to heart because like that wasn't nobody else's money. That was my money that I paid all my shit. Nobody paid my bills. So it's like when people talk crap and run their mouth like, Oh, you're you're such a sore loser. Fuck you. Like you've never like people that talk shit have never been in in any type of boots that I've been in. Like, but they just run their mouths because that's all they can. They sit behind their computers like this and talk shit or their phone. Where it's like, say it to my face, and I'll fucking head by you. Like, <laughs> but that's just like how people are. But that's why I took that so personally because I worked my ass off to get to that position, and then that happens, and I'm just so pissed. So. I, I'm like, fuck it. That's just the heat of the moment. Oh, I end up making it in to the main event that night. So, and then they, they happen to have it on live TV pointing right at me from fucking 10 miles away, straight into the garages. And then they see the whole thing. So, I mean, it's, but yeah, it's awesome at the end of the day to think like, yeah, those are all those little things that, that helped my career and my name grow as doing stupid shit like that. Yeah, like the, obviously, there's a couple of ways you can look at it. Like, oh yeah, like hey, sore loser, you didn't you didn't win, so you like like uh, you kicked your bike. Some people can look at that as like it's a negative thing. I saw it as like, yeah, this kid cares. Like, this kid gives a shit, and and he's pissed to not make it into the main because you as well as I know, there's more than a few privateers out there that are uh, just happy to make it into the night show, and they like they don't try like literally you see them on the heat race. They're like halfway down this, the straightaway and the start straight. And they're like, basically just like standing up going through the first corner. Like they made their night show money and they're going to roll around in the, LC- in the LCQ too. Um, you gave a shit. And I think that the rawness and like, yeah, like for every other kid, like, like myself who could only dream to get into a main event. Um, yeah. Damn right. You're going to be pissed that you're not in there because that, that was like, if, if you hadn't made it into that main event, that'd be one more main that you wouldn't be able to say, go back to some sponsors in the off season and say, Hey, I, I made it into this main event, many main events, plus the money that you would have made going into the main event. Obviously you make more making the main than not making it, but yeah, I don't think anyone can, uh, can fault you for, uh, for getting up, upset about that. And yeah, I think uh, you probably earned yourself more fans than you lost on that particular day. And uh, yeah, I, if, if no, no one else was impressed, I think a guy like maybe like Coy Gibbs who ended up signing you to a, a contract in the 2015 season to race Yamaha, obviously it was probably uh, Joel, Ar- uh, uh, Jer- Jeremy Albrecht who uh, ended up like, I guess making that uh, bridging that, uh, um that relationship but uh yeah like tell me a little bit about going to uh jgr uh meeting jeremy meeting koi and uh kind of getting pulled into the fray because uh i think you were their kind of guy yeah definitely that that whole thing came about like obviously they'd seen what i was doing and i know like my dad was in their ear and then um buddy which was who was my trainer in he was professional i think he started like when he was training uh, he was training eli tomac and i would hop in back all the way back to like 11 2011 2010 so i think buddy was in in jeremy albrecht's ear like hey you need to hire west you need to hire west because they were friends they grew up together racing and mechanic and whatever but right so the whole thing generated from from antonis in their ears my dad's talking now and then they're watching um but yeah dude, that whole thing was was awesome i mean that was like 
once I knew that that once I signed with JGR, I knew that that was going to be the highlight of my of my career because at that point I knew they could do whatever they wanted with bikes. They could build me whatever I wanted, and they had factory bikes, and it was better than anything I ever had. So I knew that at that point in my career, now I don't have to worry about building my bike figuring out how I'm going to get to the races, figure out this, figure out that. I got to figure out what kind of money it's going to cost me to do this. Like I knew that I had all pressure off me other than the only pressure I had was just to train and ride my motorcycle. So that, that allowed me to yet moving off of 14 season off season. I literally, my whole off season was dedicated to training my ass off and cutting weight. I went from, I went from like 225, 230 to 190 pounds, 195 pounds. So I cut, I, my whole off season was literally, I was on the bicycle for 15, 20 hours a week cutting weight. So that's what I knew I had to do to be able to keep a factory ride because I had time now. So now I had that time to dedicate and bust my ass. So that made a huge difference in my career as well was having a ride, now having all this time to actually critique and perfect my riding and my body and this and that. And so that's what... That's what was awesome, you know, obviously getting factored right now is having the options to kind of <clears throat> dedicate and focus on what you need to be done to succeed in that situation. So that was that was awesome with JGR and, and all those people are badass. Like like Koi was kind of just like me, like rough around the edges, like just had money, had a team and just wanted just wanted to, to have good results. And and he and he gave me that opportunity. And and when people give me opportunities, dude, I fucking run with it, dude. I'm not gonna off and i think they wanted change too because they had a lot of riders that had talent but they didn't have the drive and they were tired of like the same old bullshit i'm not going to say names but they're fucking quitters you know what i mean like they don't have what it took to like give that end game result you know they have they started off good and then they'd have excuses and cry and they get hurt and this and that and i think they they gave me an opportunity because they wanted something different Certainly. I, I think you certainly fit the mold of what they were looking for. And like you just hit the nail on the head, man. I think the biggest advantage going from a, a factory program or a privateer program to a factory program is the time. Like when you guys can just focus on fitness and going fast on two wheels, um, that that is the hugest linchpin to just being able to unlock all of the potential needed to go as fast as those guys go. When you have to worry about working on the bike, cleaning the bike, talking to sponsors, saying, hey, are you going to send me that money? And they're like, oh, what money? Uh, like all that stuff throughout being a, a privateer, um, that like that stuff, it's all just distractions and time taken away from just going out there and working hard. And then honestly, I couldn't think of a better guy to be working with uh, as a, a trainer and riding coach than Buddy Antonez. I think he was honestly uh, maybe um a, like maybe one of the biggest sort of um he was a cheerleader for you he he like beat that drum to say that this guy is someone who has potential and honestly from a like i've i've been to a, a buddy antonis riding school uh he took some la some seconds off of my lap times which there's a lot of seconds to take off those lap times uh but uh um he's a great guy to work with and uh it was amazing to see you literally turn yourself in from a guy who was yeah, main event guy all the time, some 15th, some 14th to like after you'd started working with uh with with Buddy outside of a couple of weird finishes, you were 7, 8, 9, 10. Like you're a top 10 guy almost every single weekend. And uh yeah, working with him seemed to really uh kind of like that was just what you needed. 
No, it was like Buddy like was probably the best thing that happened for me, like as far as being a trainer. Like he <clears throat> like he stepped in and and like we jive. Like like I said, I, I learned a few things by riding with Tomac when he was training him, but like at the end of the day, like if it wasn't if I never had Buddy as a trainer, I would have never made it this far in my career. Because like he took me from rough around the edges, rough around the edges as a rider to like who I was and how I rode, and that's what built a couple of the trainers at that time. But none of them had the patience and and, and knowledge that he had. So like, like I said, I mean, is is you know as soon as I started seeing results with Buddy, it was like fuck it, this is this is what I needed, and we just kept busting our asses and. I mean, and it showed because I mean, we'd be, we'd be, he was like, he was like obsolete for me for a long time. Like it was just me and him. Like I paid him well. And that was all, that was all it was. It was me and him, me and buddy, me and buddy every day, busting our ass. And, and it shows. And, and I, I give a lot of it to him, you know, as far as me building that speed and, and getting those results is, is because of him. And obviously there's a lot more to it than just that. But as far as like, the, I'm only as good as I am with what I have in front of me, you know, and, and he allowed me to, to have those options. So. Yeah. It turned itself into a lot of top five finishes and even two podiums. Like tell me a little bit about Santa Clara, 2015, uh, aboard a Yamaha, um, that like you're, you're standing on the podium alongside who, let's see who, who you were on the podium with Eli Tomac and Ryan Dungey. Oh, just, just, just Ryan Dungey and Eli Tomac. No big deal. Uh, beating guys like Jason Anderson, Cole Seeley, Blake Baggett, uh, just Justin Brayton. And Oh, this guy from Curry Curry, Australia named Chad Reed. Um, I think I'd throw my shoulder out, putting my, like patting myself on the back for that. Uh, tell me a little bit about that race and, uh, and, and just how much that meant to you to, to, to take home that uh, third place. Yeah, yeah, so I'll back it up. So actually, yeah, it's I mean that will I don't know how deep you want to start from the beginning of 15. Like yeah. Let's just do that. I'll just cap 15. So okay. 15, I was like, and the, the thing too about Buddy was like he always taught me. He's like, he's like, screw everybody else on the track. He's like, don't even fucking worry about anybody. Race them like hay like, balls. Race. Race the track to my head of like f these people don't worry about these people like who cares if it's james stewart or ricky carmichael or villapoda when they get around factory riders like if you're on that level like you're not as fast as them and if they're behind you they'll just move over and let them go like so i never had that mentality i was like if you're behind me like i'm gonna fucking race you just like i'm gonna race anybody else like get by me and then i built that that realm of like it was funny so like these riders would try to pass me if they were scared of passing because they knew I wasn't going to give it up. And they'd know if they came underneath the inside of me and try to take me out, I was just going to lean right into them fucking, and they're going down because I'm not moving. So like that whole part of me and, and Buddy obviously was rad. And then stepping into that 15 season, just I was on pure, like just I, I busted my ass in that off season. Like I was fast. Me and Barcher were training together um, back in North Carolina at the at our track in, in, in North Carolina. Then here and there so like i was pacing myself off barsha like barsha was the number one guy i was number two so like i'd seen it like so that that, that gave me more drive that was probably a mistake on them because like barsha was number one guy they 
paying him millions of dollars. They're paying me not nowhere near close to that. So like with with that drive of like me not getting 100% focus and he was always the focus, I was like, all right, well, I'm going to show you guys what's up. Like, so we stepped into the rounds. Anaheim one went decent. Um, then Seventh? Phoenix. Yeah, because I, I think I me and Barsha fucking stood behind or something like that. We we're going back and forth. But but then, you know, going into Phoenix, man, I was like, I was like, all right, I'm done. I was getting good starts and like I was just driving that night and shit was going good. And, and I got off to a really good start. Um, was all, all over Dungey, past Dungey. Um, punked him out, actually. That was a solid pass. <laughs> 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 no, he's a good dude. But yeah, so that kind of that that night for me was was like my turning point. Like everything was clicking. The bike was the bike was awesome. Um, I was running third place for fucking two laps to go or something like that and then i <clears throat> i stepped on stepped off to a table and when i landed i my foot was off the peg a little bit too far and i rolled my foot off off the edge of the of the peg and i snapped my um my tendon ripped the bone off my outer part of my foot so then i had to, obviously my bones fucking broken on my foot so i ended up done you had to pass me or that would have been my first podium of my career but then just that whole thing is what's set but then i got hurt so then after that i had to get surgery i got my bone wired back on i tried to race the next weekend after i just had my whole foot cut open in surgery and it was wired together and blah blah show up to anaheim too right fucking try to do practice it a bunch it was muddy i hit the finish line as soon as I landed on the finish line, the pressure of obviously that it's it snapped the bone off again with the wiring and everything in there. So then, then I went and I flew with coach private back to North Carolina and saw one of their doctors, and they fixed it again. So then I was off. I was off for I think a month. A few weeks. You, can't, you didn't come back to the uh, till Valentine's Day, uh, February fourteenth, twenty fifteen, uh, Arlington, twenty second. Yep, yeah, that's right. So that dude, that year was like my best year, but my shittiest year because like I had that speed, I came back good, and then I freaking crashed in. I want to say it's a fucking. It had to have been Arlington. I I crashed in the heaters or something. I tore my MCL. Oh, First MCLs are tough, especially if you have the you have to pinch the bike with no MCL or even a torn MCL. Ugh. So I, I tore my MCL like the first or second race back, then. I still race. I just had uh, my trainer, Pat, at the time. Not my motor trainer, my off the bike, like not even trainer. He was my acupressure guy. So he traveled with me, like just like Navarro and all those guys. Um, mm-hmm. But he ended up having to just tape my knee every single weekend to get through the whole season. So, yeah, so that was crazy. This happened, that happened. I went to, um, which I think Santa Clara, Santa Clara was before New Jersey, right? So, I had a huge crash. Uh, one sec here. It's uh, yeah, it, it was. It was uh April 18th, uh third place right before, before East Rutherford or yeah, yeah, New Jersey. April 18th, for those who know what that's all about. Yeah, I had a huge crash in the heat race in Rutherford. Then like I had the the, the I had a huge crash, the the rear, the rear fender broke off and fucking shoved into my ass cheek and put a huge hole in my ass cheek in Rutherford like crazy and then I had my back was wrecked and then I did that I got through that night 
And then, yeah, just did rehab all week and shit, stepped it up and then went to Santa Clarita or Santa Clara, whatever the hell. And that was my, that was my first podium um, was that weekend. Same thing, got off to a good start and just kind of rode hard and busted my ass and made that happen. So that was, that was a huge thing for me because like, I never would have thought I would have gotten a podium. You know what I mean? Like with the field and and how many people were racing that year, like I still look back and I'm like, oh fuck, I guess I I really did that. You know, it's it's one of those things where you, from where I started to then, it's like, it, it's just hard to hard to come across to think of that. Well, yeah, and like for for a guy like yourself, uh, like just looking at the results from Vegas that year, you also got a podium. Uh, ahead of guys like uh, guys that you would have grown up either like you're a couple of years older or younger than uh like well I think you're about the same age as Cole Seeley. Uh Seely, Grant, Baggett, Barsha, like those are the guys who ended up behind you in that particular event. And uh like it it's gotta feel good after a lot of years of basically playing second, third, or fourth fiddle to those guys um and uh and and just putting in those good results and and honestly yeah if i'm looking at 2015 was about as up and down of a year as you could possibly have you go uh 7 4 22 you know you're hurt for that month 22 5 10 8 4 22 5 22 3 10 3 like <laughs> that is a roller coaster weston yeah yeah, that was that's what I was saying. It was my best but worst year of results and everything else. But it's at least I showed speed. You know what I mean? That was like it was like it was like that category of like figuring out that you can go this fast, but can you maintain it? You know what I mean? Because I was never that fast, and I I built so much speed from fourteen to fifteen that it like took time to figure out how I can how do I maintain this? Like how do I how do I stay in this position for this long and you know, stay consistent on the bike and not crash or make a mistake. And <clears throat> so that was kind of, yeah, it was, it was a learning curve year for me. And then I had, and then 2016 sucked. I kind of was on off, had a, had a bad off season and just kind of just caught up from there. And like, like I said, 16 was shit to me. It was that whole feud with, with freeze and I made it work. I, I drove to that here. Yeah, like that. Obviously, that is maybe one of the most endearing and uh, everlasting moments of your career. Uh, that particular race, raining down blows on one Vince Freeze. I'm sure, like so many other racers, were probably thinking, like, I wish I could have done that at some point. Uh, I, I, I would assume that you have no regrets about how that what that night went. No, I would do it again. I don't. That's how I am. Like it was. Uh... <laughs> I've had feud with him. We, me, and him go back to because we were on Moto Concepts nine, but he was two fifty plus. So I never had issues with him. I just always knew he was a dirty ass rider and fucking snaker front and out or cross over or whatever from the get go. And so my first encounter with him practice, let alone distance practice, he he cuts off the track and cleans me out before the whip section at Washougal National. And that's when I first got up then and got into it. I don't know if I hit him. I might have hit him or shoved him, whatever the hell, and the flaggers broke it up. So that was my first field with with uh, Vince. And then kind of we've had our things here and there, back and forth, going at it at races. Like, I was always faster than him, but it was just like that thing where it's like he always got good starts and he always had to pass this dickhead. So then he always had to, like, game plan, like, 
all right, I need to pass him in this part of the track because he can't catch me to clean me out in the next turn. So that was like racing Vince was like figuring out when to pass him to get a little bit of a gap on him so where he can't come back and clean you out in the next turn. And then obviously, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that weekend in uh, Anaheim, it was just kind of like, like I said, I wasn't on my game. I kind of had a shitty off season, and and he just pissed me off, cleaned me out in the heat race or something like that. Didn't clean me out, but ran me ran me wide, hit the hay bales, crashed, and then straight into the into the semi or whatever it was then. And he, I didn't even have to look, just like it was that bad. Like I didn't even have to look to see who cleaned me out. I knew it was him. Oh, yeah. so that's instantly got up and i was like fuck this guy like and just started hitting him and like yeah it was it was good i mean i got a ton of publicity on it i lost money made money i don't really care it was i'll do it again you know it's that's life absolutely i think if, if the if you guys ever raced arena cross together they do that 1v1 thing where they like pit two racers against each other i think that would uh, maybe break the internet on how many votes my favorite part about that the whole time like yeah the punches were hilarious but then when like he he's like getting back up and you're like standing and you literally just like like just like put like you're just like middle finger yeah. straight to his face <laughs> like yeah. that was um like as a hockey player, I think that was about as hot as as close as motocross ever got to hockey, and and I I have a lot of respect for that. So good on you, man. Yeah, yeah, there was yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, he's he's currently uh, suspended uh, indefinitely from the team or something along those lines. He's also hurt. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't I don't know uh, what the future holds for that young man. But uh, um. 2017 2018 were were a lot better years for you like you sort of picked up the pieces after a lackluster 16 and and you were back to being like inside the top 10 more often than not lots of top fives um one thing i noticed and like you actually righted the ship the last year that you raced uh at uh at millville is you only had one top 10 finish at millville what what do you have against that place because i love it i fucking hate it i hate it i've <laughs> I have never done good there. I've had a couple good rides there, but that place just always seemed to fucking kick my ass. I don't know what it was about that. I've I've been landed on by Brock Cross. I think every single time I raced there, I so that was like one that I just despise going to. And, and, yeah, I don't know, but yeah, the whole so, well, yeah, 16, 2017, I I was I got in Phoenix Supercross, and that's and I snapped my wrist and dislocated it, so I missed okay. that whole season of Supercross in 17, and then I came back in outdoors and raced the Flodder series because that was my contract year. I didn't have a contract for 18. And a lot of other people didn't either. So I was like, fuck, if I, so I rushed my injury and I'm talking, I had, I dislocated my wrist, tore my perilunate, um, broke some other stuff. So I, I had four pins and, and some fucked up shit in my wrist and I rehabbed the hell out of it. Came back way too soon um, because my wrist wasn't ready, but I had to, because like I said, I didn't have a choice. Cause if I didn't race outdoors, I wouldn't have been signed for 2018 with JGR because there was bubble out there. There's bubble up and there's like three or four other guys up 
that were like chomping out JGR, like, oh, I'll fucking ride for this, I'll ride for free. And I'm like, you fucking weasels, dude, like trying to like <laughs> jump in and get a ride because they suck and they can't fucking, they can't get a ride anymore. They can't get paid. So they're, they're willing to ride for free. So that kind of was like, fuck, okay, well, I got race. I don't have a choice. So I raced, um, I, I did decent of outdoors. I couldn't even barely twist the throttle because my wrist was so destroyed. So, I mean, it was like, I'd wrist brace, take brace, this, that. And, but I made it work. And then I had a good off season and, and then came back out swimming for 2018. And, and that was kind of, I think 2018 was my most consistent. I didn't have the best, I didn't have results like 15, but I had way more consistent. I think I almost raced every single Supercross race consecutively had top tens i believe and and no podiums i think i had a, i don't even know a couple of fourths or whatever the hell but um yeah 18 was good and i was back on my stride like i felt like i was in shape i felt, felt like i was in 2015 um but obviously just you know i got your ups and downs but it, it was overall a solid year and i was looking forward to going into 2019 and obviously got injured and that was it so for sure. And yeah, yeah, 2018, you started off with three top five finishes, a lot of great finishes throughout that year. And as a, like, I was already uh, covering the sport at the time, I'd interview you after a lot of races. And it, it was sort of like the the narrative there was like Weston Pike is, is back and, and, and a player in this and uh, sort of disturbing the, the piece in the top 10 again. Um, because like, you're very much unlike a lot of the guys you raced against uh, physically, just your approach things. You're a lot more hard nosed uh, than I'd say anybody who races inside the top 10. You've got a lot more snarl to the way you approach racing. And I think that's a little bit abrasive to even like the, the most, even the toughest guys out there or some of the most aggressive riders. Like I, I think you'd still sort of label either a Jason Anderson or a Justin Barsha in the top 10 right now as being the most aggressive of those guys. And I don't think those guys would fuck around with you at all uh back then so um you're definitely kind of like cut from a different cloth uh talk about that a little bit about just sort of being like sort of um like i would say like you were i wouldn't say a, a disturbance or like you 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 sort of like you upset the apple cart of like a diff like you were a guy in the top 10 that was kind of like one of these things is not like the other like tell me a little bit about that yeah, no, for sure. I mean, people, I think people always looked at me, especially riders, like, how's this big-ass motherfucker racing and, and beating ass? And I could tell you, you know, they'd get, they'd get frustrated and they'd get upset, you know, like, especially, like, what I was with, on the team with, but it's like, put in the work, dude, it's like, I'm just like everybody else, but people looked at me differently. Like, they thought, they looked at me like I shouldn't be in that position and doing that good because the, maybe the way I came up or just maybe the size of me or this and that, but I mean, that was just what I always had to deal with. And I, it's, that's just what was the the regular and I was used to it. And, and that was my advantage. Cause then people were scared of me. Like as soon as I made that, that footstep down of like fuck around and, and I'm not, we're not going to play this game. Like it would almost worked in my mentality, in my favor because people would see me behind them. And they wouldn't try as hard. They they'd be like, "Oh fuck, I don't want to. I don't want to deal with this." Or if they were behind me, they wouldn't try me because they knew it wasn't going to end up well. There's a couple that tried me. The bar show always tried me. Anderson, me and Anderson got into a bar show, but not a lot of 
actually step up to the plate. And like I said, there was a pressure of him. So. Yeah, like, I think you would have uh, probably rearranged one of those guys, and then that would be that. Um, last couple of things I have for you here on the Big MX Radio podcast, and I think we're going to have to do a part two at some point just because you got I, you got way more stories than we've even got. We've, like, scratched the surface a little bit. Uh, so you're going to have to read a repeat offender. I don't think you'd mind that whatsoever. But um, let's talk a little bit about uh, Travis Souls, uh, a guy who was uh, at your side when you had your your injury. Uh, he was a mechanic for you. He's probably still a, a good friend to this day. Uh, and a guy who I, I think, honestly, he's one of the good guys of the sport. He's he's a guy of character um, and, and just an all-around good dude. Let's talk a little bit about Travis. Yeah, so Travis came in to my 18 year because I, I seem to have a ton of mechanics. I think I had three or four mechanics on JGR. Um, but yeah, Travis was, Travis was awesome, man. Me and him drive. Um, I didn't know about him at first. And then everything kind of clicked. Uh, we got along well. Super awesome person, and you know we just built a really good relationship. And then we had a, we had a great year. It's, I mean, he's fucking awesome mechanic. I can't say nothing bad about him. And then, but I mean, he's he's just an awesome dude. He's been there since day one since that whole time last minute. Um, but just kind of awesome, you know. Stayed there. I stayed there with you know me and my dad and him, and kind of just he was there through everything. And then you know fast forward to now we're still awesome friends we hang out all the time whenever he's around and you know now he's been balancing around with a couple different teams and stuff but he's uh he's a good dude i i really enjoyed having him as a mechanic and always bust his ass you know you didn't have to worry about nothing because you knew that when you were getting on that bike there was nothing that was going to break and fall apart absolutely and i think the two of you guys like uh a little bit of self-defecating maybe give each other a lot of shit and, and laugh like uh i i kind of see you as somebody who if like if I'm not making fun of you, it's because I don't like you. You know what I mean? If, like I need to be able to like chop it up and like uh, like throw out some insults and stuff like that. That's what guy, kind of guys do. And like Travis is totally that guy, and I think that that you fit that mold too. Oh yeah, we me and we were just we talk shit all the and we still talk shit. Like that's just how that's how it was. Not that's what made us work good together is because it was just we're always just bullshitting and we didn't keep anything from each other. If he seen something else fucking up on, he'd call me out. You know what I mean? It wasn't like. He's not like a lot of other mechanics where they're just like, they're just pushovers. You know what I mean? They're just like, they'll just take it to take it because they know their place where he'd be like, nah, shut up. Like, you fucking suck today. Or you're like slow or this or that, you know? So like we kept it real, which was, which was good for people. So. Absolutely. There's enough people in the, in the world and the industry who kiss each other's ass. So uh, yeah, you don't need any of that in your program. And uh, last thing I have for you, man, is uh, when you look back on your career, um, how would you want to be remembered uh, by fans? And, and how do you remember yourself? Like, like, how do you remember the, uh, the professional athlete that was Weston Pike? Like, you're still that guy. Uh, but unfortunately had an injury that, uh, that, that ended what was a very fa- uh, pretty fantastic career. Uh, but what, what would you hope that people sort of like look back and remember? Um, I don't know, man, just kind of as that like hardcore writer that came up for nothing and, and just proved that hard work pays off and just gives that mentality to people that you don't need things handed to you, that you could just, you know, you could prove that busting your ass gets you in better places and further than than most people think that, that I would and, and that I take no shit dude I don't know I mean it, that's a hard question to answer like I don't I mean people remember me for who I was like because I took 
Yeah, so I don't know. It's, I just I just roll with it, dude. I'm like, fuck it. You love me or you hate me. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I think maybe that's the key to success in in, in a lot of things. Because honestly, uh, like on top of being an unre- unreal racer, you've always also had the ability to always pull hot chicks, Weston. What the hell is up with that? Like, I see her walking back and forth every once in a while. You have an absolute smoke show of a girlfriend. And, yeah, there she is. Like, just, what? what's, like, what's the secret, man? Like, is, is it just, like, like, you just have, like, the biggest wrench in moto? Or, like, what? what's the deal? No, I'm white. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the biggest rant. Watch, that's going to get narrated now. I'm racist, but whatever the fuck. I don't care. Um, yeah. No, I guess I got, what has it been? <laughs> I guess I know how to talk to him or whatever. I don't know. Fuck. I just make it work. That's that's what, that's all that matters. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. He made it, made it work on the track, makes it work off the track. Weston Pike here on the Big MX Radio podcast. Uh, Weston, this has been so much fun, man. I, we need to do this again. Uh, you're you're my kind of guy as far as uh, a racer and someone who I had a ton of respect for uh, as a racer and still to this day. So I really appreciate you making the time to talk, chat with me today. You know, I appreciate it. Man. Yeah, we'll have to, like I said, I got stories for days, dude. So if, yeah. um, whenever I would stay on longer, but I got a dip to go to this I know. appointment. Uh, yeah, like, like I said, let me know. I'm more than welcome to come on whenever and, and spit some bullshit. So I love it. Well, like, yeah, like I said, um, don't hang up just yet, but for podcast sake, we're going to cut it off right there. And what an amazing podcast with Weston Pike. It was honestly, I can't get enough of that guy. So many good stories. We're going to have to have him on again. And, uh, yeah, thanks for everybody who took the time to listen and special thanks to my good friend, Mark Pardoski, who, Uh, Let me know that uh, I had neglected to uh, add the audio file to the post when I had put up the original um, podcast with Weston. Otherwise, you guys would not be listening to this. I also want to give a huge shout out to um, Mark in general because the guy, um, I watch this guy on on social media and we don't hang out nearly as often as we need to. uh, But the guy is absolutely crushing it. He's got two amazing sons that are like probably better in the garage than I am at this point. Um, Mark is a, a basically one of the best welders I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, if you're not follow, following uh, Bulletproof Metalworks on uh, on Instagram, you probably should be because he's got some really cool projects that he, he rolls out and he's got some even cooler stuff that he put out uh, years ago, uh, like a cafe racer that he never should have sold. But anyway, hopefully you guys enjoyed this podcast. And uh, if... Uh, your name happens to be Sean Wedge, and you just finished the elliptical. Proud of you, buddy. Great workout. See you back. See you back at the gym tomorrow. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everybody.